0: Do you my mama? Welcome friends, today's episode is called The Witnesses, and as we continue to move our way through the final chapter of Migilat Rut, we are now going to shift our focus from Boaz and from Ruth even. Today we are going to focus of the witnesses. So, just to have a quick station identification reminder, let me reiterate what we talked about in our previous episode. Boaz had gathered a large crowd almost by default, at the Sanhedrin. There he faced down the putative redeemer, Tov or Eagle, gets him to step aside and Boaz makes his move. He purchases the heirloom legacy or estate properties and Boaz also marries Rus. In doing so, Boaz first calls both the elders of the Sanhedrin as well as the good citizens of Beit Lechem. and Boaz says to them I want you to bear witness for today this generation and future generations that I Boaz the head of the Sanhedrin have taken Rus as my wife and that I'm going to establish Will reestablish the lineage of the family, redeeming the widow of Machlon and reestablishing the legacy of his brother Kilion as well and Eli Melech. Talked about this in great detail yesterday. So today's focus shifts to the witnesses. How did they respond? Did they accept? the responsibility, if you will, that Boaz had thrust upon them, that they rejected, with a, if you will, willing partners. And that brings us to the fourth chapter of Migilas Rus. Today we are going to study verses 11 and 12. You're going to love it. This is great stuff. We're going to hear about blessings. A torrent of blessings that came forward from the well-wishers. And we're going to analyze these blessings. And a lot of fascinating things are going to come to the fore. If you're a feminist and you like the notion of the female contribution to Judaism, you will especially enjoy the conclusion of today's class. But let me not be a spoiler. Let's get right into it. Today's class begins with verse 11. The whole nation. Well, it's not the whole nation. It's the nation, or the citizens, who had gathered in the gate. The gate, as we learned previously, is a euphemism for the concept of the Sanhedrin. The administration and the legal headquarters certainly for that province but perhaps in a much larger and more prominent way for the people of Israel for the tribe of Yehuda was said to have become the progenitors of leadership it was said that Malchus that royalty would come from the tribe of Yehuda. and a particular bloodline had been identified Boaz is of that bloodline Elimelech is of that bloodline. It is eminently possible that Sanhedrin we refer to here was a national rather than provincial or municipal institution. Now the people who had gathered round Boaz and Ruth on this occasion, amongst them were some of the most august sages of the time, members of the Sanhedrin. They were Torah scholars, rabbis, and they were elders. They were community activists, And our understanding is that there were lots of ordinary townsfolk, everyday pedestrian citizens, old and young, rich and poor. According to the commentary of the Zohar, everybody present sensed that they had the privilege of being part of something special, that history was being made before their very eyes. The Sanhedrin, under the leadership of Boaz, had issued a cardinal ruling, a paradigm shift in the way the Jewish people would relate to their close neighbors, Moab, and the nation of Ammon. Henceforth, converts, righteous individuals, who sought a deeper and more profound relationship with God and wished to bask under the glory of the Shekhinah, the wings of the Shekhinah, would now necessarily be able not only to convert, but the female members of the Moabite nation would be able to marry into the regular nation of Israel. And the same would hold true for Ammon. This was something that had not been done for centuries now, since the Jewish people arrived in the land of Israel. It's a big deal. It's a fascinating commentary in the 43rd chapter of Shmois Rabbah that states that if a sage issues a ruling, a ruling that we would call in 21st century language controversial, or a ruling that we would call in Torah language novel, a chidush, something which hadn't been done before. The Medrash tells us that if the Chochem, if the sage or the court wants that law to be accepted, by the populace, then the chacham himself must first do this. Because when people hear a rabbi say such and such is permissible, but they see the rabbi himself not doing it, well, you know, that gives them pause. Let me share with you a fascinating little vignette, which has nothing to do with the story of Rus, but it's about a wedding. And it makes this point in a very, very profound and incisive way. So, most of you probably know that Jewish people do not eat a dish that is comprised of milk and meat. The Torah not only prohibits the consumption of meat and milk that are cooked together, the Torah prohibits the cooking itself of meat and milk together. What happens if there's an accident? Somebody spills some milk into a stew. Well, you've got to ask a Shiloh. Because there is a possibility under a particular set of circumstances that we might experience something called bottle that the tiny drop of milk could be outweighed many, many times by the volume of meat, and as such it would be absorbed into the larger volume and would cease to exist if you will, meaning that it would be permissible. So the story is told in a particular shtetl, there was a wedding. And somebody was drinking coffee where he shouldn't have been, and a little bit of milk, somehow inadvertently ends up in the boiling pot of meat, the stew that was being prepared for tonight's wedding. You know, you've probably seen Fiddler on the Roof. You can imagine what it's like. All the townspeople come out. A, they slaughter a goat, and you know, this is a—it's a big deal. Now, it was pretty clear to them that the volume of milk was larger than one sixtieth of the stew, of the meat, but at least in antiquity or or even a century ago, people didn't play doctor and didn't play rabbi. They would ask the question. Today everybody knows everything. You just Google it and everybody's an expert on every kind of discipline. But once even people who were somewhat learned in Jewish law made the point of asking a Shiloh. So they ask a Shiloh. The rabbi listens to the question. It's a big deal. There's a wedding tonight. They can't find another goat to slaughter. There's not going to be dinner at this wedding the rabbi says give me an hour okay they don't know why he needs an hour and they don't even know what the question is it's pretty open and shut to them an hour later the rabbi rules that the stew is kosher and when he sees the shocked faces he says and i will be eating at tonight's wedding the townspeople thought the rabbi was probably just being kind and maybe he Maybe he didn't think that they really had to be so scrupulous, and maybe he was worried about the pain that would be caused to a bride and a groom and to their families. The rabbi officiates the wedding, and dinner is served. And as the story goes, the rabbi generally did not eat food that anybody else had prepared. He only ate the food from his own home. But tonight, everybody's watching, and the rabbi partakes of the stew the rabbi does what they said, that's good enough for us. So everybody partook of the stew. And it was a mystery. Centuries, oh sorry, pardon me, decades later, after everybody, a whole generation had gone, the mystery was solved. So it turns out that the rabbi called the milkman in. And he said to the milkman, how much water do you mix into your milk? And the milkman said, absolutely not, rabbi, I'm an honest man, I would never do anything like that. The milk is milk. And Rabbi said, I understand. I'm not accusing you of being deceptive. Uh, I'm sure you're not a liar. Just tell me how much milk? What's the volume of milk? And after several minutes of flat out denials, the man became very emotional. He began to cry and he said, you know, I've, I, have, I, have, uh, I have so many needs and I just, I just can't make it. I just, it's not my fault. You know, I, I didn't have a choice and nobody knows the difference. And it's very rich milk and I mix it well. The rabbi said it's okay i'll never tell anybody your secret stays with me just tell me how much so the man confesses and he tells the rabbi how much water is mixed into the milk and the rabbi makes the calculations and it's just just because the volume of real milk not the water band milk the volume of real milk with the water and with the stew equaled and the point of this little story as it is told, it's many. It has many interesting points about asking a shayla, about how the laws of kashrus work, about how a rabbi has to be much wiser and smarter than simply knowing the halachas of the Shulchan but understanding human nature and trying to look into the bigger picture when there is a need and when we have a challenging set of circumstances. But the the reason I'm telling you the story is that an important component in that story was that the rabbi himself partook of the stew. Had Boaz's Sanhedrin ruled, Moaviv velo Moavit, Amoni velo Amonit, but Boaz nor all of the sages of the Sanhedrin would ever have acted upon this ruling. It is doubtful whether this ruling would have been accepted or taken hold. And so, you didn't have to be a prophet to know that something historic was unfolding here. The people sensed that this ruling, this huge discovery, the announcement that had been made by the Sanhedrin several months prior was now being acted upon by the leader of the Sanhedrin. That's a big deal. This would change Jewish life for centuries. At a later time, all of the nations became one great big hodgepodge, as Maimonides Rambam tells us in the time of Sancherev, during the Assyrian jaggernaut which conquered most of the civilized world at the time and displaced populations, exiled populations so that there would not be indigenous jingoism which would lead to rebellion. And we don't know who is an Ammonia and who is a Moavite, and anybody who converts with sincerity is accepted by the Jewish people and can marry into the Jewish people with the exception of a Kohen. But, but for a long time this ruling made a world of difference. And of course, you and I know the rest of the story. David HaMelech, the Davidic monarchy, is going to emerge from this union. The Mashiach will soon come, and he, Mashiach himself, is descended from this bloodline. But the people, without knowing about David HaMelech and Mashiach, understood that nonetheless this was a very historic moment. Something very big was going on here, in all likelihood. There would be some kind of unusual and extraordinary thing resulting or emerging from this union. And this is the background, I think, that is important for us to contemplate as we move forward in the study of these verses, because knowing that they had witnessed something of historic proportion, it moved them. They became very emotionally engaged and involved, very excited. And the first thing that happens is that they accept upon themselves the mission that Boaz had thrust upon them, namely, that they should witness. As the Pasuk says, the whole, the entirety of the assemblage of the gathering Chance out in unity, Asher Bashar, Ve'hazikeinim, and the elders, Eidim. Now, the word Eidim kind of appears without any modification, but it would seem that it's almost like saying Eidim Anu, or we accept upon yourself that we will be Eidim. In the words of the Baal Ha'akeda, in his commentary on Megillus Rus, he says, Ba'yemruhal ha'am, what they meant to say is, and I quote, haze We accept this mission upon us. You have given us a mission that we should serve as Aden. We should bear testimony to what is about to unfold. Here. We accept this upon us. This will be a consistent, an ongoing, and lasting kind of testimony. This is not a moment. This is a moment in history. And we accept the responsibility, the charge that you have placed before us, where Boaz said to them, edim atem. So their response is, edim. Almost like saying, yes, we accept that mission upon us. Now, from the notion of acceptance, the awareness that something historic was unfolding, and that they had the privilege of participating in this very important moment, they then, on their own volition, erupted in excitement. The people themselves did something Boaz did not ask them to do. And that's why I'm calling this episode The Witnesses, because this is about the witnesses. Boaz called upon them to be witnesses. The previous episode was really about Boaz's challenge or his request. Today's episode is about their acceptance. The witnesses accept upon themselves the responsibility and then, of their own volition, the witnesses go on, as the Baal HaKeda puts it, and afterwards, then they blessed. They blessed Boaz, they blessed Ruz. It was clear to everybody present that Boaz was acting in a spirit of nobility and altruism. This was not a selfish act. This was not Boaz's seeking gratification on a personal level. This was Boaz doing what he believed to be the right thing, the missionful thing to do. The people sense that. Truth be told, people sense sincerity. However, our sages tell us that it was actually more than just people sensing sincerity. If one looks at the words of the commentary of the Tsar, you get a sense that the people actually Became, if not clairvoyant, inspired. And so filled with this holy inspiration, a manifest higher consciousness that became a part of their vision and their worldview at the time, propelled them to bless Boaz. And that's exactly how the passage continues. Yitain Hashem Esha May God place this woman... So grant or grant this woman. Perhaps a better translation. Habo el beitecha. Who is coming into your house? As I explained in the previous episode, the notion of marriage is a woman entering into the jurisdiction or house per se of the, of the husband. Boaz is a member of the tribe of Yehuda. Ruth is a Moavit. Something he made very clear before, so that there was no question as to Boaz being fully aware and the people being fully aware of what was going on and what they were ratifying. But at this point they say, Ha'isha, the woman, may God grant the woman, ha'boa el-betecha, who comes into your house. Rus' children will not be of the Moabite stock. They will be not only Jewish, but they will be of the tribe of Yehuda. They will be the progenitors of the royal bloodline that Hashem had promised through the prophetic blessings of Father Jacob, of Yaakov, of Vinu, when he spoke to Yehuda, indicating that monarchy would be his. So Ha'ishah ha'bo'a b'isecha Let this woman be k'rochel Uchalea. Let her be blessed like Rachel and Leah, two of the matriarchs. Asher bonu at Beit Yisrael, these two women, they built the house of Israel. be and find success or prosper in Ephrat, Vakorosh shame be and achieve notoriety or fame in Bethlehem. So, they not only ratified what happened, they excitedly erupted in blessing. And it's understood that the members of the Sanhedrin had first congratulated the new couple upon their marriage. It's uh, stated clearly in the Zohar. In Mesechet Kala, we hear about a special blessing that was recited in antiquity for a widower who married a widow, as was the case here. So we will assume that that was the blessing they recited. And the Sanhedrin announced that something very unusual had just occurred here. The Sanhedrin, whose mission or purpose, whose function is to adjudicate law, had now served as witnesses for a very large land transfer, a real estate transaction, as well as for a marriage, witnesses for a marriage, again, which we spoke about in elaborated on in a previous episode. In the words of a Peter kadmon, cited by the Me'am Loas, Dezikenim said, Edim, yes, we are serving as testimony. Ah, al pi sanhedrin lihiyot edim It is not typical that the leaders of the court, that the sages, that the senior judges would serve as witnesses. Nonetheless, Khan, in this instance, Here where a leader of the Sanhedrin has elected to marry in this public fashion and as we talked about under such unusual and historic watershed circumstances Amru Aden, they said yes we will be witnesses in this situation we accept that upon ourselves It's interesting that our, our rabbis note that it is we can derive from this that it is, um, shall we say, appropriate or a special thing when you call upon very prominent individuals to serve as eidim at the chuppah for the marriage. And it is actually tradition that we seek to have prominent witnesses, people of great piety. And if you have a, an impressive assemblage, you choose some of the most impressive or prominent individuals to serve as Edim as witnesses. You know, um, Baruch Hashem, (laughs) my wife and I had the incredible privilege in the the bracha of bringing our second son to the chuppah a few months ago, but you know this is COVID and whilst we were in the the tri-state area in the United States where the laws are not nearly as uh, stiff and and draconian as they are for us now in Canada, um, but still Almost all of those in attendance were related. So there were Baruch Hashem, many prominent members of, 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 of the assemblage, but they were all members of our family. <laughs> we had to actually look to find two people. Forget prominence. We had very nice Edim, Baruch Hashem, but you had to find Edim who weren't related because a witness can't be related. So the Pidush Kadman that's cited by the, the Ma'amloya um, says that it's mitzvah min ha it makes a mitzvah all the more meaningful and beautiful, it beautifies the mitzvah, if elders and elders, broadly speaking, are not said to refer to the amount of years one lived in this world, or as uh, the Rebbe used to say, the Yarin vas passport, the years which you find on somebody's passport or birth certificate, but a zokin, as the in Masechet Kedushin tells us, refers to Zesha Kana to a person who is sagacious, a person who is wise and has a broad knowledge of Torah. So to serve as a witness, it's a great honor. And we understand that from the story of Boaz. Now, to be sure, this was a historic wedding. But nonetheless, our rabbi said it was a wedding, and they accepted that upon themselves and therefore we can learn that not only in historic weddings but in any wedding, it's a beautiful thing, if zikanim, if these kinds of individuals could be honored as the edim, as the witnesses, to serve as the legal testimony or backing for, for that matrimony. Okay, so that's what happened. Now you have a sense of what happened. Uh, the people stood respectfully while the judge did his officiating. And then, as we might imagine, the crowd surged forward and everybody begins to congratulate Boaz and Rus, and they begin to bless them. And as we, as we can see here, this is no longer the expectation per se of Boaz. He didn't ask them to bless him, but this was spontaneous. As, as um, Rav Elisha Galico says, at this point, we talk about spontaneity. Like the Bala Akeda says, Achakach, they accepted the witness, Achakach, then they began to bless him. Let's look at the technicalities of this blessing. There's a, a little technicality that, that right away should stand out that will make us ask a question. And then we are going to look at the next verse, and together we will analyze these blessings as we try to plumb the words of the scripture for the deeper and more, if you will, profound meaning. We the Jewish people were charged by Yaakov Ovinu that when we bless somebody, we bless them by virtue of assuming a role model. In fact, when Father Jacob blessed his grandchildren Menasheh and Ephraim, the sons of his favorite son Yosef, he said, Yisrael. Let the blessing of future generations come in this image, in your image. Yisimcha Elikim Ke Ephraim Menashe. May God place you like Ephraim and Menasheh. There's much to say about that. I'll just suffice by noting that the only grandchildren of Father Yaakov, born outside of Israel, distant from the family of Jacob, living in a spiritually hostile environment. That's the way we understand ancient Egypt to have been. So really raised in a spiritual oasis, in a sea of what we would consider to be high immorality. And yet, they carried forward as the grandchildren of Yaakov. Ke'Ephraim And This is our blessing, that regardless of where we the Jewish people might be, and regardless of the alien and oftentimes hostile influences and challenges around us, that we should be able to overcome this. But the point I'm going to make is, we don't hear about Ephraim and Manashe. Instead, we hear about Rachel and Leah. Now, indeed, it is customary when we, the Jewish people, till this very day, bless our sons, we say, Yisimcha elekim ke Ephraim May God place you like Ephraim and Manashe. And when we bless our daughters, we say, May you be kesara rifka here, there's no mention of Ephraim and Menashe, despite the fact that the blessings seem very much to be directed towards Boaz. The words of the Akedah is, barchuhu they blessed him, but nonetheless, although it's a blessing for him, it's a blessing about Rus, and we'll soon see how this actually divides up in an interesting manner. There's three different arenas being addressed there. But at any rate, the blessings are feminine in nature. As you'll see in verse 12, that continues. That continues. Even though we, we move into a quasi-masculine example, we move immediately back to a feminine example, which is something that we're going to talk about much later on in this class. But I want to, to note that we do not say Sarah, Rivka, Rahel, V'leya, which are the matriarchs of the Jewish people, but rather we say Yesimcha elikim, Sorry, uh, Yitain, Hashem, Esau, Isha, Hashem should place or grant this woman, Haboah Beisecha, that she should be, Kirocha And we say specifically, Asher Bonushtayem, that these two women are the ones who built Beis Yisroel. And then we go back, and we seem to be talking to Boaz directly, Assei, not Tasi, Assei, you should be successful, do valor in Efrat, and become famous in Lechem. So I'm not going to talk right now about the omission of Sarah and Rivka. Let's suppose for whatever reason it's important to focus on Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah who together built the nation, the tribes of Israel. But the obvious question is why is it Rachel? The leah, shouldn't it have been leah And you're thinking to me, why, am I, why would I even say that? Why would I even say it should be ke or u'chaleah? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because, in fact, as the Medrash immediately points out, roiv Mesubin m'she The vast, overwhelming majority of people present were descendants of leah. Where are we? Beit Lechem. Where is Beit Lechem? Eretz Yehuda. Who is Boaz? From Nachshon and Amminadav, the tribe of Yehuda. It is easy to presume that the majority of the members of the Sanhedrin in Beit Lechem were of the stock of Yehuda. The townspeople living there were certainly all of Yehuda. In those days, the different tribes of Israel lived in their different tribal formations. So the medrash says, "Roiv mishaleah," <speaking in Hebrew> and that's the reason, "Oisa <speaking in> es <Hebrew> That's the reason they focused primarily on Rachel, making her the first mention and Rachel the second. What does that mean? <laughs> if most of them are from Leah, they talked about Rachel. So the 8th Yosef explains it this way. He says, because Boaz and Beddino in Beit Lechem are all from Shevet Yehuda, which are the descendants of Leah, therefore they honored Mother Rachel. Why would they honor Mother Rachel? That's because sheilu es Leah. If they would first say, may she be blessed like Leah, Leah, and only afterwards, Rachel, they would seem self-congratulatory. Honoring themselves. You don't honor yourself. Somebody else can choose to honor you. But you don't honor yourself. Ethical behavior calls always honor somebody else more than you honor yourself. So that's the Medrash's first approach. It's a lesson. A lesson in what we call menschlichkeit. Decency and dignity. The proper behavior. However, the Medrash goes on to say, Omer Rebaba Bakahana, Rebaba Bakahana responded, and he said, responded to Rav Berechia's teaching. And he said, Rachel was the mainstay of the house of Yaakov Avinu. And all of the things that happened with Yaakov ultimately hinged on his desire to be with Leah, there was Rachel. As the Medrash goes on to say, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, that, Amru dvarim keneged Rachel, bonim lishma, that many words were said, so to speak, corresponding to Rachel. As the H. Yosef explains, Yaakov agreed to marry the daughter of Lavan and ends up marrying the daughter of Lavan, Leah, only because of Rachel. And therefore, we are all her children. And he says that's why the prophet Jeremiah, when he speaks in his Lamentations about the exiles being driven out of Yerushalayim, crying out on the road next to the resting site in Beis Lechem, the Derech Ephras of Rochel, they cry out and they say, Mama, pray for us. And the prophet Yemio says, Rochel Mavakeh, Albonneha. Rachel, Mother Rachel, cries for her children. For all of the Jewish people. I consider children of Mother Rachel, of Rachel Imenu. These are the words of the Medrash. Now, I want to take you to Rashi and the Ibn Ezra. Rashi says, Kerachol Rashi rejects the first teaching about honor and he says there's something much deeper going on here. Although the assemblage is from the tribe of Yehuda, and therefore from the children of Leah, They acknowledge that Rachel is the primary essence of the home, and therefore hekdimah Rachel Now, if I may, I think that there's something of great importance being conveyed to us. The children of Yaakov lived with a sense of competition. This is not a secret. You, you all know the stories. Yosef was the favorite son of Yaakov because he was Rachel's eldest. Benyamin was born under very painful conditions. It was with the arrival of his son Benjamin that Yaakov had to tragically bid farewell to his beloved wife, Rachel. His mother named him Son of My Pain. His father didn't want him to grow up with that kind of stigma, and he changed, or slightly modified the name, honoring his wife's wishes, but wishing to give the child something positive to identify with as Benjamin, the one born on the right or in the land of Israel, the only one of the Shvatim born in Eretz Israel was uh, conceived or made in Iraq but born in Israel whereas the rest of the Shvatim were made and born outside of Eretz Yisrael but Yosef is the favorite and you know that it's Rachel's children from which monarchy amongst the Jewish people first emerges Yosef is considered to be the king of his brothers in the end It's Yosef's dreams, of his brothers bowing to him, that are fulfilled in the fullest sense. Yosef is the longest lasting monarch ever in Jewish history, although he wasn't a Jewish king per se. He was an Egyptian viceroy and ruled for over 80 years. Yosef was the hinge, the linchpin upon which Jewish history swung. It is because and through Yosef that we leave Canaan as a family, become submerged into the dark and painful soil of slavery in the land of Mitzrayim from which we grow or emerge as a nation. It's all under the tutelage of Yosef. The birth of Am Yisrael is shepherded and Moshe Rabbeinu, and he's a levy. But monarchy initially is Yosef. The first king of the Jewish people is Shaul HaMelech. Yaakov, in his blessing to Binyamin, says, plural, will emerge from your progeny. This is what most of the Jewish people said after the death Of King Shaul Saul and his son Yehonatan, where they appointed the pious Ishboshet, the son of Shaul. Most of Israel did not accept King King David's rule. He ruled over his tribe's people in Hebron for seven years, during which time the rest of the Jewish people formally paid homage and honored Ishbosheth as their king. Ishbosheth is later murdered under very tragic circumstances, And really it was his chief of staff or general who was running the country at the time. But that's a story for another day. The point I make with, to, to you is that there was this competition right in the beginning. And then, of course, David Melech moves in and establishes the monarchy of the Jewish people. It lasts for three generations. because after King Solomon, things go south. Jewish people divide yet again. The northern kingdom, which calls itself Malchus Yisrael, fractures and separates itself from the southern kingdom, which is called Yehuda. We are still the nation of Israel, but we are known as Yehudim, as Jews, which comes from the concept of Yehuda. So there's always this, this kind of uh, tug of war. If you read the scripture on a very literal level, Rachel and Leah are vying for Yaakov's attention and each desperately wants to be the one to bring progeny into this world. The people are going to be blessing Rus, who is not of Jewish extraction. It comes back from the times of Avraham Avinu, from Lot. And they want to bless that they will build a nation but in building, blessing the building of a nation, which in a deeper sense, as we're going to talk about soon, that the house that's referred to here is not the house of Israel. Rus is not the mother of Israel, but she is the mother of monarchy. So as such, we refer to the notion, and we'll come back to that a little bit later, we refer to this notion of Rachel and Leah, acknowledging that despite the apparent competition between the children of Rachel and Leah, even the children of Leah, Yehuda, from which the monarchy of the Jewish people is going to emerge, acknowledge that Rachel is a keret habayet. She is the mother, first and foremost, of the nation of Israel. So it's very meaningful. This is, a, this, is, this is a big deal. They erupt in blessing. But as many of our rabbis taught, there was a prophetic sense or a higher consciousness that uh, accompany these blessings, as you will see. The Ibn Ezra says they began with Rachel, shahosa Yakov This is the Ibn Ezra, essentially interpreting the words of the Medrish. Really elaborating on or annotating the notion of a karatabai, and says that it all began. He kind of conflates the opinions. That we read in, read in the Midrash of Rabbi Kahana with Abishir Chi with an emphasis in Abhishir's words, saying that she was the hinge upon which Yaakov swung. That's how he ends up marrying Leah as well. So this is the first blessing. It's the first blessing. You should be like Rachel and Leah Asherbonu, who built the house of Israel the two of which built as Beis Yisro. And then we have this blessing of Vasei Chayel, and you should make, or you should have the concept of valor, or success. You should prosper. and you should prosper in Ephros, and you should become famous in lechem. So some of the rabbis point out that ase is like saying, have atzlocha. atzlocha. You know, Chail is a, is a term for atzlocha. Ephrat is a secondary name for Beit Lechem. As the ashech points out, we read of the Jewish people coming to the land of Israel, mean, the Jewish family of Yaakov, and at that time, coming to the land of Israel, we hear about Bederach Ephrat, He Lechem. So this is uh, essentially, essentially a, another name for the same place. So we talk about success in Ephrat. And by the way, there is a beautiful settlement. I don't want to use that word. A beautiful town in Eretz Yisrael called Ephrat today which is based on that Biblical notion, which is not far from Beit Lechem, in which, tragically, no Jews live today. And Beit Lechem, this is, in other words, as we'll learn about later, to be a, the beginnings of a family which will not be known as Moabites, but rather as the people of Beit Lechem. According to the Alshich, there's an element here of blessing that goes to Rus in which you will no longer be known as Ruth, the Moabite but rather Ruth Halachmi, Ruth of Bethlehem. So this is how Rashi and the Ibn Ezra interpret the beginning of this pasuk. I want to go forward into the next pasuk, the next verse, and then we'll begin to analyze these blessings. Which were spontaneously offered in unison by all who were present. After talking about Rachel and Leah, after blessing them with success in Ephrat and fame in Lechem, the next set of blessings were, vihi betcha, let the house that you build be kivet parrots, like the house of parrots, asher yolda, tomor le who was conceived or b- given birth to of Tamar by Yehuda. Tamar bo- bore him through Yehuda. Min Asher Yiten Hashem Lcha, from the seed that Hashem will give you. And the verse concludes, Minhanayra hazot of this young lady. I mean, she's not that young. She's forty years old. Rus Boaz is much older. He's eighty years old. So he's forty years her senior. But she's not exactly a spring chicken. She's not twenty one. And yet, here we refer to her, to the children that she will have, as uh, the progeny coming Minhanayra hazayis from this young woman. Rashi says, Kbeit Peretz she numimenu. That's, of course, the seed of Boaz himself. My dear friends, this requires a lot of explanation. What in heaven is going on here? There are so many questions to ask. And so many beautiful things to speak about. Okay. Let's take, it, let's take a look at the Al-Shech, who encapsulates in a uh, rapid-fire succession, many, many of the questions that we might ask. There are other questions asked by some of the other Mepharshim, many of the other mufarshim as well. But the Al Alsheikh in his commentary, in Moshe, begins to ask a slew of questions. I will share a selection of them with you. And then we're going to get into this. So he says, Firstly, why do we emphasize and Hashem Esa Isha? Let God give this woman Habalbait who's coming into your house that she should be Kirahovalaya Al Shav says so just say Yitain Ho Isha Kirahavalaya or Yitena Yitna What's the Isha Habal Bay Secha? And then he asks Why is it the why is the emphasis on First and foremost, the blessing on the woman coming into your house. What, what are they getting at? But what if it wouldn't be, what if we just say, Yitain Hashem asa isha, habo, whatever they were getting at, Hashem should give her success. Why do you have to say, altogether? And why is it important to say, like asher banu why mention them all together? And then why do you have to say, We know exactly who Rachel and Leah are. No secrets here. And then after blessing like Rachel and Leah, if you had to choose examples, why go into the specifics of the house of Peretz? House of Peretz is one family. It's not even a tribe. We know who Peretz is. Why emphasize Peretz, Asha Yoldo Tomer Who bore a child, who Tomer bore to Yehuda. Min Hazera Hashem. This should be same for the seed that you will bear, that she, that this young woman, that the Hashem will give you from this young woman. It's <laughs> like they're emphasizing something. And the question, of course, is what? And lastly, the Ashech points out that in the beginning, in verse 11, Rus is a woman. But by the end of verse 12, you'd be surprised how young she got. She turned into a young lady. A girl. She starts off as a woman, she ends as a girl. People usually get older, not younger. And anyway, over the course of the five minutes, she certainly couldn't have changed. Why did they refer to her in these two different ways? So I want to begin by, uh, by giving you the Ashech's overview explanation. And then I'm going to add many, many other details lifted from other Bafarshim as well. The Alshech says this. Remembering everything we've learned up until this point, especially the reason that Boaz called upon the assemblage to, quote, witness this event, was because this was a, a big deal. Boaz is doing something, let's just say, very Unusual. He's the Rebbe of the Jewish people, the leader of the Sanhedrin. He's marrying a woman many, many years his junior. And she comes from a dubious set of circumstances. She is the daughter of Eglon, an idolatrous pagan king, sworn enemies of the Jewish people, who up until very recently nobody believed could marry into the Jewish people altogether, much less marry the Rebbe of the Jewish people. And Boaz was concerned with wagging tongues and people casting shadows and aspersion. We talked about this in great detail in previous episodes. This and many other reasons was why Boaz called the people to witness the event. This was not going to be a backdoor negotiation. This would not be a secret destination wedding. This was going to be here, and now, and in a very public way. The Sanhedrin understood. The people understood. They understood that not only should they be acquiescing to Boaz's request, but that they should be encouraging him. Aware of the importance of what was transpiring before their very eyes, there was this spontaneous torrent of expression. So the Alshech says, they wanted to bless Boaz, they sensed his unease, and yet they themselves were unsure of whether this was a Leverite marriage, whether the spirit of Machlon had attached itself to Rus and was being redeemed, or it wasn't actually Leverite was maybe Levirate in a very broad sense, as Rashi told us, and we read this together in the previous episode, that when Rus would go upon the field, people would say, oh, that's Machlon's widow. Rashi doesn't interpret it in the most literal way. And we don't use the precise verbiage that the Torah invokes when it speaks about Levirate marriages in the book of Deuteronomy. We use different verbiage here, as we pointed out in the previous episode. So this is something that the people, this is, this is a, they're showering love and affection and blessing and benison. It's coming from the people first. ha'am. Verse eleven opens with the people, Asher Bashar, with the people, the citizenry, the ordinary populace who's gathered there in the Sanhedrin. The zekanim, the zekanim, are also being witnesses, but that's a novelty that zekanim, elders, Sanhedrin, should witness. First and foremost, the ordinary people accepted this, and they didn't know with certainty whether this was actually levirate, an actual redemption of the soul of the deceased, which is what a levirate marriage is about. Or maybe this was just a righteous woman who had come to the Jewish people through Machlon and through Naomi and through Melech. But now Boaz was going to pick up the broken pieces of their lives and enable some kind of continuity. Boaz's children had died, as we discussed many, many lessons ago. His wife had died and children had died. He was tragically a widower alone in the world. Rus is a, a lonely convert a princess from a foreign land raised by idolaters, so pious and righteous, and Boaz will marry her. But maybe it's not Leverite. So in their blessing, they encourage Boaz and Rus, they bless Boaz, and the first thing they want to say is it's not necessarily about Leverite. We don't, we're not acclaiming what you're doing because it has to be a Leverite, even if it isn't Leverite. Ruth is righteous. Yes, she may be a Moabite, but this is the the Tova. This is the very special and holy individual that was prophetically spoken of who would come forth from the nation of Moab. And this is the moment where something wonderful is going to happen. So the Aushach says, not being certain of whether this was or was not the concept of Levite in the fullest sense, they wanted to bless Boaz. What was Boaz concerned with? What would people say? They would say, this woman? Do you know who her family is? Eglon? An idolater? A pagan? A cruel, vicious, immoral individual? What do you know about Sarah Imena's father? Not very much." He was a. Uh, he wasn't sure if Avram was right or wrong. Sarah is Lot's brother. Avram marries his niece. He ends up dying al Kiddush Hashem. he's the first one ever to die, for professing faith in Hashem, because unlike Avram who emerges unscathed from the fires at Ur Kasdim, his brother Haran does not. As they say, not too shabby. I mean, Avraham doesn't come from any fancy father. He comes from Terach. Yitzchak marries Rivka. Where does she come from? She comes from a less than savory environment, but it is exactly the same place that Avraham and Sarah and Lot came from a short time earlier. We know very little about Bessual. He definitely wasn't a big tzaddik. But that's about it. How about the father of Rechleleah? Uh, we know lots about him. He's a bad man. He's so bad that we mention his name when we speak of the pantheon of anti-Semites who tried to destroy us. In fact, he's included in the same sentence as the Pharaoh. Arami Ovid Ovi. An Arabite. Try to destroy the Jewish people, when we were just a tiny family, he came with baleful intent. He's a bad man. He was an idolater. And he had very righteous daughters. So righteous that Rachel stole his idols in the hope that she might perhaps bring about some kind of reformation, which does not happen. So where'd she come from? A sordid background. Unimpressive parentage or lineage. If you were standing in the crowd, you wanted to encourage boss. You wanted to say that you understand that this is a historic moment and it is a reflection of history, that this is a righteous act. Whose name, whose image Whose past would you evoke? What could be more natural than Rachel and Leah? And so the Alshach says, after accepting the challenge to serve as the attesting witnesses, they said, The woman who's coming into your house. She's coming from a lousy house, we get that. But she's left her house behind. She's a convert. She's coming into your house. But the woman that is coming into your house should come in a sense of, she should come and arrive. What else unusual happened in this whole unusual story of Boaz and Rus? If you haven't been watching, I strongly encourage you to go back and watch the previous episodes. So Naomi, who's really the architect of everything we're talking about now, she knows that Rus was seen and noticed by Boaz, but nothing's happening. So she pushes Rus to do something very unusual. acts in a very forward fashion. Not waiting for Boaz to knock on her door, she invades his private space uncovers his feet. She's gone to the mikvah, I'm available. Very unusual. Certainly on the surface does not seem to be discreet or modest, refined. She was uh, very aggressive, if you will, in pursuing Boaz, which is not typically the way it is. The townspeople said, we understand. It doesn't make her bad. That, too, is historic in nature, because we know that Leah went out to try to grab Yaakov from Rachel. In fact... When Leah's son brought home some mandrake flowers, which was said to have some kind of propitiation for fertility, and Rachel wants the flowers, and Leah says, You have Yaakov and you want the flowers? Rachel says, Okay, fine, fine. So then, then you take Yaakov tonight. And Rachel says, Your son is, she went out. She was very forward. She literally came out there to grab Yaakov and take him away she conceived a child that night. So it is possible for a Jewish woman to behave in a forward fashion which on the surface seems to deviate from the modesty and the ideals of Jewish womanhood and yet l'shem shomayim done for the highest of intentions can lead to the greatest of things. That's Leah. Leah. How brilliant is that? What better blessing could they have bestowed? By mentioning the names of Rachel and Leah, they have allied all of Boaz's possible discomfort. Any doubts or fears he might have habored. Any concerns he might have had. What better blessing than to acknowledge the reality rather than sweeping it under the carpet and say, Yes, this is unusual. Her father, nobody to write home about. Not exactly the chief rabbi. And yet, she is fully righteous. Her behavior, a little unusual. Not the typical modesty that we espouse for a Jewish girl. And yet, in the image of the matriarchs, it is they who built the house of Israel. And so, the Shek says, even if it's not Levirate, even if she is tzadiket upreda tovo of mo'av, even if this is the redemption of the Holy Spirit that resided within the sordid reality of Mo'av, nonetheless, this is not something you should do with faint heartedness or any hesitation. This woman, Haba al this woman who comes, Shahita Bat Goyim Oiv De this woman who was, in her previous iteration, the daughter of non-Jewish idolaters and pagans. And now she is Ba el She's coming <laughs> to your house in a very forward fashion. And so the Alshech says, by emphasizing the words, Ha'isha, Ha'bo'ah, the word Baa means forward, coming forward. That woman who comes from that background, who came forward in a less than modest fashion, to Machazeret she's chasing you, pursuing you. Our blessing to you is that she eaten Hashem oisakir Rachel. May Hashem grant her to be like Mother Rachel, kibat goi oritz eved She was the daughter of a miserable idolater, mean-spirited, cruel and vicious man, deceitful, duplicitous, an absolute criminal was Lavan, and for her Yaakov worked for all those years. Burned by the sun and frozen at night. Ba and on the second detail that she was ba, that she was forward. Says the Al may she be like Leah. Kigamhi Holcha, Elmitas Yakov, She too went to the bed of Yaakov in the place of her sister, wife Rachel. Radufo Acharov, She pursued him. Wasn't so modest. Taitse Echutse went out there. She said, Elaitov, Yaakov, you're sleeping with me tonight. And Einze Kiyim, Mitov Kavanoson, this was not in a licentious way, Chas V'Shalom. this is not an act of immodesty. These women were propelled by the holiest of desires to build the house of Israel. And they wanted together to build a house of Israel, even though it could not have been comfortable for these two sisters to be wives at the same time to the same man. Really an awful situation. That was love and brought about by loving, but divine design. How and why these two sisters were married and why Yaakov remained with them is a subject for a different class. And actually, I've given a number of classes on that. You can Google it. But... Hatzad says the Alshech. The common denominator, the denominator of the two is called Yishon their entire desire. They yearned for one thing, and that was Livnos Beis Yisro. And we know, the Alshech goes on to describe in detail, that Rachel was worried that maybe if she didn't have any children, Yaakov would divorce her, and then she would end up in the house of Esau, of Esau. And that's why she said, Havali banim. She said, demanded of Yaakov, Give me children, If you won't give me children, I will die, because she was afraid that, Yaakov, Esav. Very interestingly, the Torah's Chesed, he says, Just as Rachel and Leah with Sidkonyes, just as the two of them were so righteous, the Hishtokaku. Laylaid Bonimi Yaakov, their desire. If you read the verses that talk about their conversations and the way they vied for Yaakov's attention, what were they looking for? They wanted one thing. They wanted to bring children into the world. They wanted to build what is known as the house of Israel. She merited through her forward nature, through her aggressive nature, motivated by a desire to bring Yiddish Kindalach into the world. kach hazera may that seed, the seed that will come forward from rus, be in the same fashion. even though she behaved in a manner which is Unusual, smacked of impropriety, coming into Boaz, so to speak, nonetheless, that she should receive the blessing just as Rochlin Leah did. And then the Al Sheikh says, but what if really, what if really this is a Leverite marriage? If it is a Leverite marriage, Then they said, then there's an incredible historical background. In derech if this Leverite. So then she did not merit to have children from Machlon. As we talked about yesterday, she may have married to Kilion also for a brief time. Did not merit children from either of them. Just like Tamar. Tamar was the woman who was married to Er and then to Onan. Two very brief marriages both died she did not bear children from either she did something extremely unusual in dressing in a provocative way and seducing Yehuda because she desperately wanted to join the Jewish people this mirrors the behavior of Rus who dressed in a provocative fashion and came to Boaz and tried to get him to take her so to speak so, the, the townspeople, the ordinary citizenry, saw a historic link between Tamar's behavior and between Yehuda's behavior. And Tamar is one of the great tzidkoneis, righteous woman of the Jewish people. It is she who did not have children through her first two marriages, but did merit to conceive through Yehuda. And that's the ancestor of Boaz. And so, that was considered to be of a leverite kind of marriage before Matan Torah. And so, as they say, whatever it takes, Tamar wasn't going to stand down. She wasn't going to turn and run. So also Rus behaved, and despite the fact that she did not succeed in conceiving a child with either of her first two marriages, the blessing to them was the Yihi. Beis Beis Peretz. Let it be like the house of Peretz. Because Peretz, the first of the children of the twins that was born by Tamar, is the ancestor of Ben As Rashi tells us. Beis Peretz, So, really, there's a beautiful historical paradigm. And all the questions we ask fall away. This is not about mentioning names of righteous Jewish women. This is about creating what we call a linkage, and a historical precedent for a historic marriage that's unfolding right now in real time. And the people bless them with the success of these very same ideas that happened previously. Haisha, Habba, the woman, come forward. If it's Leverite. She died, the first two husbands died. They go on the he base base parrots. So let your house be like the house of parrots. That's That's the story of Tamar and Ruvain, which seems so similar to the story of Rus. Here they refer to Rus as a naira, as a young woman, that she should be able to, so to speak, bear the seed just as Tamar did in her time. Here we emphasize not the impropriety, the seeming impropriety and blessing that the marriage should prosper and that Boaz should prosper, but that she should conceive, emphasizing a fountain of youth and fertility, a naira Hazais, the children that will come forward. So this is, I think, a a foundational approach to understanding these verses. And it's very similar. What the Alshach says here is similar in many ways to some of the things that are talked about by the other Mefarshim. In the words of the Ketzir Chitim, he says the nation and the elders were also praising the Kala. What do we know about Rachel? She was beautiful. It says, we know, What do we know about Leah? She was very private. In fact, some of the Mepharshim speak about Ani Leah Rakesh. They said, Rachel was sent out into the sun. She dealt with the sheep. But Leah wore like a bonnet. She didn't go out into the sunlight. She was a very, very private individual. A very pious individual in her youth. And so, here the says that by bringing to mind Rachel and Leah in addition to everything we've talked about, here we have this notion of the beauty of Rachel. Rus was beautiful. And she was modest. The modesty that's attributed to Leah. She should be just like they. And just as they, they too built the house of Yisrael so very interestingly, the words asherbonu, it says elbeyscha, kirachol the words Beitcha, your home, finishes with a chaf, kirachol finishes with a lamed, kileya finishes with a hey, and those last words, last letters of the words comprise the Hebrew word kala, which is a bride. So they were like saying, your bride is beautiful. And this indeed, is the appropriate thing to do. It's appropriate for people to praise and to bless the chasa and the kala. In fact, the Tuv Tam says from here we learn that when somebody comes to a wedding, that they should take the time to bless and to pray for the success of the chasa and kala. Very interestingly, the Yemenite Jews who have some of the oldest traditions have a custom of reading these very verses at the chuppah of every single wedding conducted. The Tehidus Chesed says, not only do we know of Rachel's beauty, but the Torah also speaks of Yaakov's great love for her. That indicates the blessing that they said, Boaz should have great love. It should be a loving marriage. Rachel only has two children, but Leah was very prolific, giving birth to seven children. So they said, it should be a house in which there is love like Rachel, but a house filled with children like Leah. And between the two of them, it was Yaakov through his ardent love for Rachel and through the prolific nature of Leah that the Jewish people were built into a nation. The Pirish Kadman cited by the Ma'am suggests another reason why Rachel. Would be given greater attention. This is interesting because the Chazal don't say this, and of course the traditional Mefarshim don't talk about this. But he says it seems pretty clear that Rus was an akara, that Rus was a barren woman. In fact, the sages tell us that she didn't have really the plumbing it took. She had a faulty uterus, and she shouldn't have been able to conceive and have a child. That's why she didn't conceive with Machlon or with Kilion. Who else? had a faulty uterus, Rachel. Rachel was an akara. And so the blessing was that just as Rachel, who in her youth was an akara, was a barren woman, but later was able to bring children into the world, so too Ruth, who seems to be a barren woman, and now is already 40, she too should be blessed with bringing children into the world. And that's why they placed the greater emphasis on, on, on Rachel before Leah. the Dina Peshara also talks about this idea, develops this idea in in a very interesting way. The Torah's Chesed adds that the verse, like roses amongst the thorns, is said to refer to Rachel and Leah. And that's, like the Alshach said, exactly how it would describe Rus coming out of the thorns of Moabh. "ase, chayil be have great success, valor and ephrat. According to the Tiras Chesed, the word "khail, if you add, if you add the numerology up, gives you the number 48. Lamed is 30, 10, Yud is 10, and Ches is eight. He says, this is a hint to the forty-eight children who are listed as coming from Rachel and Leah in Parshas. Vayigash, at the end of Parshas Vayigash. The Ralbag Gersonides has a very interesting take on the mention of Efrat. He says that Efrat here refers not only to a place, but also has a kind of a double meaning. Because Efrat gave birth to Khur. Kolev ben Yafuna was married to Ephrat. She gave birth to Chur. And Chur gives birth to Betzalel. And he makes the Mishkan. And ultimately, it's from that family of Yehuda that Bethlehem or Beit Lechem is established. Because they come from Chetzron and Chetzron lived in Beit Yehuda and Beit Lechem Yehuda. So, it all kind of um, exquisitely comes together. The idea of the secondary blessing, Kibes as, Peretz, as we talked about here, is a, a fascinating like euphemism or reference to further seeming impropriety, as the Peter Shkadman also says, similar to the idea of, of the Arshech. But the Malayha Ha'imer takes it a little further. He says, you know, if you take a look at Tomar's children, you'll see that there was a contest between the first child and the second child. The first child emerged first. And it says that there was a scarlet thread that was wrapped or tied on his tiny little wrist, as if to say, And later he's called Zorach. However, he doesn't come out. The hand is withdrawn, and in the end, the other baby emerges first. And as we read in the Pasuk, in the verse, it says, "Ma Wow, Peretz, he has had strength. He is overpowered from the word of Lifrotz. Overpowered the other one, and he has succeeded in actually being the first. And the Hagodah's B'Rishas tells us, Peretz, this is Mashiach, who is called the Poretz. So the Malay Omer says, the Goel, the uncle of Boaz, was poised to have this merit. But Boaz propelled himself to the front like Peretz. And so according to the Malay that's why we emphasize the historic nature of the birth of Peretz is similar to Boaz's actions with the Goel removing the obstacles, making sure that the Goel would step aside so he could come forward. So, once again, kind of a historical cross-reference between what happened in the past and Boaz's actions that were taken. The Be'er Mayim Chaim says, the Be'er Mayim says, it is very telling that all of the names of the people that we evoke here, almost all the names historically are female. Leah, Rochel and Leah, not Ephraim and Menashe. Like the house of Peretz, Asha Yoldor Tomar, that Tomar gave birth to. Bring into mind three extraordinary women. So the Be'er Mayim says something very interesting. They did not bless Boaz and Rus together with the blessings of Ephraim and Menashe, even though Yaakov says, Be'chol Yivarech And even though they, the emphasis here is on Peretz, because this is specific to a messianic redemption rather than the plurality of the Jewish people, but because also we see a strong feminine influence weaving its way through this entire story. Deberi Marim says, as we're going to learn soon, it was the woman who named the child that Rus is going to bear. The story goes back to the days of Lot. Lot doesn't name the children. It's his daughters, who really make those children a reality, and it's the daughters who name the children. And the Be'er Maim Chaim says, "Hanoshim mispailus yose ha hayetsimigederateva," miraculous events, extraordinary strokes of divine providence. As a rule, move woman, the feminine spirit, more than the indifferent male. Woman are predisposed to faith and respond to spiritual stimuli in a much quicker fashion. The Be'er Mayim says this is why in the time of the Agil, the tragic and disastrous catastrophe of the building of a golden calf a short 40 days after Matan Torah, we know that the males did this. The woman did not participate. When the males refused to go to the land of Israel, Following the damning report of the scouts sent by Moshe de Meraglim, the women were mechava They wanted to go. Both the daughters of Lot, the ancestress of Aurus, as well as Tomar, the ancestress of Boaz, demonstrated the strong spirit of pious and righteous women who were prepared to color outside the lines and step Beyond the pale of propriety in doing what they believe to be the will of Hashem. And so there's a strong emphasis here on the feminine contribution. The Tzemach Tzedek, in a mimer that I spoke about in the previous episode, emphasizes that although it is clear that the entire Megillah was written to document the lineage of David Hamelech, it's called Megillah Rus. And Tzemach Tzedek says that if you want to understand who David HaMelech is, you need to understand who Rus is. And he says, if you want to understand the story, you have to understand Naomi and her sons and daughters-in-law and husband. You have to understand Rus and you have to understand Naomi because it was the wisdom of these women. It was the tenacity and the commitment of these righteous women that lead to the development of the Davidic monarchy. The Tzimach Tzedek quotes our sages as saying, "David HaMelech sheyotza Mirus, Baruch Hu There's a link between David and Rus, skipping the other generations that'll be mentioned, because David would proverbially satiate God with song and sonnet. With with his praises, the book of Tehillim, and the word merave is seen as a play on the words root. Tzimtzumatzedek quotes a very sophisticated uh, piece of Zohar which links the name root to malchut. It's a little bit nuanced. I'm going to go into the details of that, and Tzimtzumatzedek here talks about root as being the same Hebrew letters that represent the Hebrew word tor, which means a dove. It says, The sound of the dove is heard in our land. Our sages tell us this refers to Yetzias Mitzrayim. But leaving Mitzrayim wasn't enough. The Jewish people had to receive the Torah. And we had to go from Tor to Torah. And he says that's the idea of root, absorbing the energy of the letter He. And that's why Megalat Rus is connected to this period between Pesach and Shavuos and why it's read on Shavuot. Because the name Rut is actually linked to the concept of Torah itself. And so we see here a very strong feminine influence. It should be noted, there's a mimer from the Mithlod Eber, in which he states that when it comes to prophecy, females have a higher and a deeper sense of prophecy. We talk, I talked about that, I shared this in one of my classes, on in, in which Hashem says to Avraham Avinu, listen to Sorah she has greater intuition and our sages talk about the nature of sarah's prophecy that she was greater than avram in her ability to prophetically envision the future there's some classes i gave him a Masechet megillah which i encourage you to go and watch if this intrigues you entitled feminine superiority in prophecy so there's a certain element of prophecy that's unique to the female soul and this, my dear friends, has much to do with the story of Rus and with the unfolding of the house of David HaMelech. And I want to conclude with the following idea. In the blessing, in the blessing that we hear the populace give Rus, they say, you should be like, like Rachel and Leah, <laughs> asher bonu the two of whom built the house of Israel. The Brisker of Velvel Brisker, in his commentary, says something fascinating. He says, Rachel and Leah built Beit Yisrael, and Rus Hamoaviah is called Ema or Ema Shel Malchut, the mother of royalty. And so he suggests that just as Rachel and Leah built Beit Yisrael, you will build the Malchut, base David, base David, base Yisrael, base David. The Rav sees a fascinating connection between the concept of base Yisrael and base David. Each merits to build a home. And I think it's very interesting to note that when. Miriam and Yocheved, the sister and the mother of Moshe Rabbeinu, I should say Yocheved and Miriam, defy the orders of the pharaoh and refuse to listen to his instructions of infanticide. It says, And so these midwives, Yocheved, the mother of Moshe, Miriam, her helper, Moshe Rabbeinu's oldest sister, defied the pharaoh, didn't listen to him because they revered Hashem. Hashem made for them homes. And what are these homes? Rashi, quoting our sages, says, The priesthood is called a home, an edifice. The Levites have a, a home, Hashem. Royalty is Called a home. These are called Batim. The Leviim and the Kohanim are in Hashem's house. David Amalek is in his royal palace. Indeed, it says in the Pasuk, "Va'yiven is Beit Hashem, es Beit Amalek. The Rebbe once explained that this notion of Batim. This notion of homes, which we talk about. In other words, the reward that's given to them. As it says, And that this specifically emphasizes the gift of being able, so to speak, to build an edifice, a house in Israel. That this is indicative of the notion of many, many verses that speak about precisely this concept. So for example, the Rebbe says that Rashi, by quoting this verse, that Rashi is, doesn't have to bring a proof that a family could be called a home. That's known. Family can be called home. There are various examples of families being called home. And in fact, we bless every chosn and kala that they should build a bayit neman be a faithful edifice within Israel. However, the intention of Rashi here is that when we come not to the notion of a family home, but just batim in and of themselves, it doesn't necessarily refer to bricks and mortar, but it could refer, even when it's not stated in a familial sense, to the notion of kahuna, leviyah and malchos. So, in other words, the concept of Bono as base Yisrael very much transfers onto Rus, as we see that when it comes to Malchut, when it comes to royalty, the concept of bayat, even when not stated in a familial sense, immediately begins to refer to the home. Rus builds the greatest edifice of all time. She builds base Hamalchus. It is through her tenacity. It's through her devotion, it's through her courage, through her piety and through her willingness to do what is right at great sacrifice that Rus will merit to be the progenitor, the mother, the ancestress of the bloodline that will result in the Davidic monarchy. And from there ultimately comes Mashiach Tzidkenu. Thank you for joining today. I hope you found this uplifting, educational and inspiring. I certainly did. And I hope and pray that Amir Sashem together we will very, very soon and in our time have the privilege of greeting Mashiach, the great-grandson of Boaz and Rus will be Amenu speedily and in our days. Amen. Thanks for joining.